Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I don't think the war is over. I think the revolution is over. I think when you see people going back to the government-held areas because they're sick of the war and because they're sick of the poverty. I mean, I'm not saying that like the government areas are, are perfect, but I'm just saying that kind of the government gave them the option. It's either stability or freedom and chaos. And so, of course, people will choose the stability. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Derek Gannon. The United States military is officially leaving Syria. Maybe. On December 19th, 2018, President Trump declared the war on ISIS finished and announced the withdrawal of all U.S. troops from Syria. Since then, things have gotten complicated. On January 16th, an explosion killed 19 people, including four Americans. On the 21st, another explosion felled a convoy in northeast Syria. ISIS disclaimed responsibility for both of the attacks. Here to help us untangle what's going on is Lubna Marai. Lubna Marai is a Syrian photographer, journalist, and writer. She covered the Syrian war as a photojournalist for Reuters from 2012 to 2014. Currently based in Oakland, California, she is a frequent commentator and researcher on Syrian and Middle Eastern affairs. Her work has been published in major news outlets and publications such as The Nation, Time Magazine, Vice, and New Republic, to name a few. Most recently, she graduated from New York University receiving an MA in Near Eastern Studies. She's currently writing her first book. Lubna, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. So how did you first get involved in the Syrian revolution? Your father was actually a fairly senior official in the military, right? Um, He was not an official member of the Syrian government, but he's a businessman. And on my father's side, um, are very close with the Syrian government. So they're close with the Syrian government, but they don't have any official titles. What was it like in those early days and how did you get involved? Um... Honestly, it's like very hard to answer this question, but I remember in the beginning, I mean, like by the end of 2010, uh, I was 19 years old and uh, we were like many Arabs or like many people around the world. We were watching the Arab Spring in Egypt and in Tunisia. And I remember just like watching this news clips and wondering if that will ever happen to my country. And it did. Uh, in 2011, the Arab spring uh, reached Syria and uh, there was like tons of protests and then I joined those protests and to be honest 
um, I had no idea that the crackdown on the uprising would be this brutal by the government. You've spent time with a lot of the different fighting groups, you know, like the Free Syrian Army, uh, the Kurdish YPG fighters. Um, how do you see the breakdown in, in the Syrian civil war? There seems to be a lot of factions playing into this. How do you see those kind of inters- interspersed groups with different ideologies kind of working together? Like, how is that breaking down? Okay, but before we go to the, um, to the uh, military side of the uprising, it's very important to remember that the first five months of the Syrian uprising was completely peaceful. I mean, yeah, there was like kind of pushback against the brutality of the police here and there, but the majority of the protests were not uh, uh, militarized. And uh, so it's, it's always important to remember that the beginning was peaceful and the uh, militarization of the uprising came as a natural result on the brutality of the police forces. Um, In June 2011, people started to defect from the Syrian army and they and then they started what was called today the Frisian Army. Uh, groups like Jabhat uh, al-Nusra or Jabhat Fath al-Sham, they are not really fighting uh, for the same things that we used to fight for, like in the beginning of of the uprising. It's very it's very important to draw the line here between the rebels and these radical groups that because these radical groups consider the Syrian uprising as something that she that it should be fought against because they don't believe in democracy and they don't believe in human rights. And if they saw someone uh, with the uh, revolution flag, they will detain this person. Um, so yeah, it's like, just important to kind of draw the line here between Jabhat al-Nusra and, and uh, actual rebels. And You've seen, you, you were involved from the very inception of the rebellion, the protest, this, 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 the civil protest. Do, was there a specific day where the of the leadership got together and says, this is it, we have to take up arms. Like, Okay, so when that day happened, actually, uh, I knew about it because I was still in Jabli, which is my hometown, which is um, um, which is actually today Jabli, my hometown called the capital of martyrs due to the 30,000 young men who were killed fighting along the Syrian forces. So I'm from that small town, very Alawite town, and I remember one time I was going from Jabli to Latakia and I saw the ambulances coming from Jisr al-Shughur. Uh, and these ambulances had uh, the dead bodies of soldiers who were killed in Jisr al-Shughur. And this is where, that was the first time where um, a protest, I mean, like still there is like lots of debates around what happened that day, but that was the first time where protesters or people affiliated with the uprising pushed back against the police forces. Uh, So that day was kind of, that day was the day that um, we knew that, okay, there is something happening, that some people are actually pushing back against the police uh, brutality. And to be honest, that was extremely understandable because in the first few months thousands i'm not gonna exaggerate but like i think hundreds of people were killed uh in protests like peaceful protests so the self-defense act was was very understandable and it it was very justified um some activists argue that the 
self-defense or fighting against the government was the beginning of an end for the Syrian uprising. Because after the protesters started to fight back, it gave the justification for the government to escalate their violence against the protesters. And um, so, yeah, that was the day where people were like, oh, shit, there's something happening. What are your conversations with Westerners like, especially Americans? I'm curious, um, what do we fundamentally misunderstand about this conflict? God, I don't know how I can start with this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh, so many, so many. Well, what's one thing that you wish we all understood better? I mean, uh, so... Okay, so there is a difference between people who started to follow Syria in 2011 and people who started to follow Syria in 2016, okay? Like, those people who started to follow Syria in 2011, they mainly understand the timeline of the conflict. They mainly understand that, okay, what happened in Syria in 2011, in March 2011, was part of the Arab Spring. So understanding what, what happened between 2011, for example, and 2016 is really important to understand how we got here. Okay, but these people who started to follow Syria in 2016... They only see that, okay, it's a government against radical groups. Oh, it's like the U.S. backing up rebels against the Syrian government or Turkey is backing up rebels against the Syrian government. So I think the main misunderstanding or the main, the main misconception around this war is that people do not remember how it all started. And it started because there was a true organic uprising against a dictatorship. It wasn't because... It's like a regime uh, regime change conspiracy coming from the West. Um, also, another thing that I wish people understood more, and I think maybe we, uh, maybe as Syrians, we didn't really do a good job by explaining in explaining to people here how Syria looked like before the war. And I think in just understanding how Syria looked like before 2011 people will understand why so many Syrians rebelled against this government. Okay, well, piggybacking off of that, something that we're hearing a lot in the West and from like American comment commentators right now is that American withdrawal is going to be a step towards ending the war. Uh, and it'll certainly be a step towards ending America's involvement in the war, but it, but the conflict won't end when we leave, right? I, I mean, listen... In, in in an ideal world, I will be like, hey, we should stand against all interventions. We should stand against all foreign troops in Syria, blah, blah, blah and, and all of that. But today here, we're we not talking about, okay, if the U.S. withdrawal, it means the final decision will be for Syrians. This is not going to happen. If the U.S. withdrew from Syria, what we're going to see in Rojava, a similar situation to what happened in Afrin. I don't know if you guys are aware of what, what's happening in Afrin, but uh, a couple of days ago was the anniversary of the Olive Branch operation and the situation in Afrin and the stories that we've been hearing from Afrin, just mind-blowing. And if Turkey took over these towns, like the Rojava towns, which probably will happen, we will just see what happened in Afrin, but on a larger scale. So here we are not talking about like the U.S. withdrawal and then, okay, it's going to be peaceful operation. No, it's going to be a battlefield for Turkey and the Russians. And again, Syrians are completely outside of the picture. In your opinion, should the United States stay? You should ask people who are in Qamishli, to be honest. Uh, but from what I'm seeing and from what I've been, I've been, I've been talking to my friends there and 
yes, they want the U.S. to stay. They want the U.S. to protect them from Turkey. Because, again, as I mentioned before, that the U.S. withdrawal means the Kurds will be fighting Turkey again. And this is this, this is not going to be good for anyone. Al Jazeera just had an article that came out that basically Turkey... Uh, he basically had a, uh, the Sultan, yeah. I basically he had a phone call with... Uh, with the United President Trump, I guess on Sunday, and he basically reiterated strongly, according to the article, that Turkey is ready to take over the the uh, Manbij region, the uh, Kurdish-held regions in Syria. Is it a hundred percent guarantee that the Kurds are going to are going to be attack or be attacking Turkish forces if this happens? I mean, honestly, I'm 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 like I'm not a fan of uh, hypothetical scenarios, but uh, I think from what we saw in Afrin, this will be repeated again in Rojava on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, we will not be able to blame uh, the YPG or Kurdish forces if they decided to uh, seek help and support from the Russian and the Syrian troops. I mean, the Syrian government troops. Um, I think what is going to happen in Rojava, I think it's, it's again, it's not going to be good for anyone. And and it's scary, you know, because like in the past years, despite all the mistakes that were being committed by the YPG, like the Rojava uh, territories are kind of the more the most stable uh, territories in Syria today. And it's just like heartbreaking to see like this whole experience going to be like crushed by Turkey, which is going to happen probably. What bothers me today in all the discussions that has been happening around like the with, the withdrawal, especially from the American point of view, is that they're focusing so much on ISIS. I mean, of course, ISIS probably will come back on on like a larger scale, but but like the true threat here is Turkey. The true threat here is Erdogan, and like we saw it before. You know, like I I, I know I keep repeating the Afrin example because there is insane. Uh, human rights violations happening in that very small town, and no let's, one is covering let's, it. Let's, I mean, let's dig into that because that's something that Western media doesn't talk about. You're right, and I think it is important. Like, really explain to our audience what happened there and what might happen again. Oh gosh, so so when Turkey invaded, I mean, Turkey and Arab rebels invaded uh, Afrin. The first thing they did is that they pushed. The Kurds out of the towns, okay. And uh, during that time, uh, Al Ghouta was being under siege. Al Ghouta in, in the suburbs of Damascus. I mean, this is like this is one example of what happened. So people were being pushed out of Al Ghouta to Idlib, okay. And then uh, when civilians from Al Ghouta reached Idlib, they were kind of encouraged in a way to go and take over the empty houses in Afrin. So here we we started to see a demographic change in a Kurdish town. In, in a Kurdish town. So Afrin was like 39% or 20, uh, 93% Kurdish and 7% Arab. Now it's 50% Arab. So basically, the demographic, like the demography in Afrin, changed completely. Uh, the Arab brigades that are controlling uh, Afrin now are just the worst brigades ever. They are killing people under torture. Stories about waterboarding, stories about rape in jails. Uh, people are being killed under torture in jails, and 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 um, uh, interrogations in jails are happening 
uh, under the eye of the Turkish commanders. Uh, I was talking to my friend recently who just got out of uh, jail in Afrin, and he told me um, the interrogation was 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 being was done by a Turkish commander who had a translator, like like uh, like an Arab um, translator. I don't know why these stories are not being covered, and I don't know why. Uh, like even Arab activists, I feel we kind of let down this very small town that actually was the very first Kurdish town to rebel against the Syrian government. So I don't know, just like this, 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 this whole situation there is really hard, heartbreaking, and I don't want it to be repeated in Rojava. I don't. To be clear, we're talking about ethnic cleansing led by Turkish forces. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure make that super clear for the audience. This is not the this is not the first time that I've heard of this. Um, but you're you're right. We it doesn't get a lot of coverage. Yeah, I mean, also because like it's very complicated because like these uh, this ethnic cleansing, sadly, is being uh, done by, um, like by using arab proxies they are they're like they're, they're using the rebels who once stood for uh you know like democracy and like uh like a united country for everyone they are using these brigades in order to achieve their agenda in syria and 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 i don't know seriously i i i have no words how disappointed are are, are regular syrians Especially, you know, with Trump saying, hey, we got what we wanted and now we're leaving. Like, Mm-mm. how do you feel about, I mean, how do, how do you and most Syrians that are, that are, a, that were, are a part of this, the Syrian civil war with, that have stake in the game? Yeah, I mean, to say that people had high hopes on the U.S. would be like, um, would be like a big statement. I think Syrians, especially after the chemical attack in 2013, people just wanted any solution to hold the Assad government accountable. They just wanted any power to just stop the atrocities that that were being done uh in syria and that were being committed in syria um me personally i think um i'm not really again again i'm not pro-intervention and i don't think I, i i cannot see how you know, like the U.S. would have stopped the war in Syria. I think they only escalated the situation by just, you know, just like, this is such this is such a hard question. I don't know how to answer. Like part of me, I feel that, okay, the ideal scenario would be just like to hold the Syrian government accountable. But how can you do that without an, like a military intervention? You know, like how can you do that without supporting, again, like intervention? You know, but like, we should not be supportive of any kind of intervention. Um, but I think there must be some way. Again, I am not a politician. I don't know how, how, how these things could be done. But I think just showing the Assad government any... It's so hard to answer this question without sounding interventionist, you know? And, like, I'm sure if someone heard this, it would be like, oh, she's, like, pro-intervention. Yeah, of course she wants, like, the U.S. to bomb the country. But, like this is not the case like syria is not iraq you know like 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 the demands for change the demand for changing the government came from the people you know it was it it was an organic uprising it wasn't it it, it was not regime change demanded by the west and people asking for intervention in order for protection like how 
I am going to tell someone who lost all his family and saw his 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 house being bombed on his head that no, you should not ask for intervention. Like intervention for people who are now in Syria is a survival act. It's not, you know, like it's not something that okay, people are asking because they're just like like pro intervention and they love the United States. It's really happening out of out of desperation. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. That was a very hard question. I don't even know if I could have answered that either. It was designed to be a hard because, I mean, that's this. it's basically that's the question that everyone's asking themselves right now and you're right a lot of people are coming into the the syrian the syrian uprising into the civil war kind of late especially the people that have been following 2016 to 2018 now it sounds like syria is tired is is that i mean yeah but like also like like now if you ask anyone in rojava do you want the u.s to leave of course they will answer no we don't want them to leave simply because they know if the u.s left the like the Turkish troops will probably come the next day, you know? So it's like, it's very hard to answer these questions. If you, if, if you are on a survival mode, if you don't know what's the future is going to hold for you, like here, we're not talking about an intervention where there is no other foreign uh, countries are intervening in the country. And, and also like people talk about intervention, they only talk about the US intervention. Why no one talks about the Russian intervention? Why why no one talks about like Hezbollah intervention? Why no one talks about Iran intervention? I mean, if if as activists, we want to stand against all interventions, there's just, you know, like stand against all interventions, not uh, only the US. Well, let's talk about that. Okay, so for example, the uh, Russians have an airbase, which is 20 minutes from my hometown, uh, Jablé. Uh, they have uh, an airbase, they have a hospital there. Um, they are supporting the government with everything. They are supporting the government with troops on the ground and with uh, weapons and ammunition. Uh, I don't think the government would have won this war without the support of the Russians and the Hezbollah and Iran. Um, I mean, yeah, like Russia is like any other country, they want to have more uh, power in the region. And that was the main reason why they supported the Syrian government. Uh, How it looked like, I 
don't know. I know that the Syrian government won the war because of these uh, foreign powers. Um, for example, the soldiers, these Syrian soldiers are being treated really badly compared to the Russian soldiers. Like, for example, if the Russian, if the Russian soldier was injured or was hurt, they will just move him to a private hospital and they will take care of him. But today in Jibla, for example, there is thousands of injured uh, government soldiers with no support whatsoever. Um, and there is, you know, like now after eight, seven years of eight years of the war, we we, we are starting to see kind of a, a pushback against the government and a pushback against how it treat it, it's it has been treating these local soldiers, like especially the Alawites. You just you you said something really interesting at the top of your answer that I wanted to circle back to. Um, you said you don't think the government would have won without Russia's help. Do you consider this war kind of over already? I was literally just arguing with someone earlier today about this. Uh, I don't think the war. Is over. I think the revolution is over. I think when you see people going back to the government-held areas because they're sick of the war and because they're sick of the poverty. I mean, I'm not saying that like the government areas are are perfect, but I'm just saying that people just they don't, you know, like like kind of the government gave them the option. It's either stability or freedom and chaos. And so, of course, people will choose the stability and they it's, it's very hard for me to answer such question because like this is my personal opinion, you know, like so like so many Syrians will be arguing with me if I answer this way. But for me, yes, the revolution is over. Uh, it's over because it's not like that we failed, but because the Syrian government really used everything to destroy this uprising and by the way in the very 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 beginning of the uprising uh the syrian government supporters and its soldiers uh used to write on um on banners or on the walls in areas that were witnessing protests uh they were writing Assad or we burn the country that was their main slogan and they did that they they literally burned the country in order to keep Assad in power. And so long story short, yeah, I think the revolution was destroyed, but not because we didn't deserve democracy or freedom or we didn't deserve change. No, because literally the government did everything they could in order to crush this uprising. And it gave a very good, you know, it's not like a very good example, but I think Bashar al-Assad today gave an example for dictators in the future that if there is an uprising in your country, you can crush it and you can get away with it. And today, honestly, like, I wonder if Hosni Mubarak is looking at Bashar al-Assad and be like, and and like he was like, okay, maybe I should have done that. Or like Ali Abdullah Saleh is looking at Bashar al-Assad and he was mm-hmm. like, okay, maybe, maybe I should have done that. Because Bashar al-Assad proved that you can kill 500,000 plus people in your country and get away with it. Although every human rights organization is saying that, okay, this dictator is killing his own people, but no one is able to stand up for him. It's like there's no consequences. Unfortunately, no. No, and like, uh, it is weird today after, you know, after almost nine years, 
from the beginning of the Arab Spring, how dictators today, I mean, like Sisi, for example, he talks about the revolutions or like the Arab Spring in a way that, okay, that was very, that was a very bad thing, you know? So they use Syria and, and like Yemen and like Libya and every country that rebelled against the dictator as an example of what chaos is. Basically, these dictators are saying, okay, if you rebelled against me, this how you will end. And of course, no country in the world wants to end up in like in a raging civil war. But, and this is another hard question, but, but from Assad's point of view, what are you left with? You know, what does he have and what does he, what does he even want at this point? And as also... Who are his supporters and what do they want? Uh, um, I think the supporters of the Syrian government, uh, I mean, they are not all on the same page, but there is a like but but there is a big chunk of the Syrian government supporters. And if we took the minorities as an example, if we took the Alawites as an example, they were convinced that this uprising is to destroy them, that this uprising was going to push them again back to the mountains. And this uprising was just like to kill all the minorities. Um, So there is like a big chunk of the government supporters that they are only supportive of the government because it's an Alawite government. Um, And they feel that, okay, having Bashar al-Assad in power is the only reason why they're alive. Um, and I think most of Alawite people kind of, you know, like grew up believing that thing. Like I grew up believing that, you know, like that Hafiz al-Assad was the reason why we we are like in the cities now or why we're not in the mountains anymore. So there, there is like, there is something that is rooted deeply in certain uh, societies in the uh, in Syria. So this is one part of the Syrian government supporters. But also there is like government supporters who just are just like afraid, you know, who just like, okay, they know the Syrian government is bad. They know that, okay, there is a dictator. They don't mind sending their children to public schools where they will be chanting for the immortality of Hafiz al-Assad who died like 10 years ago. They don't mind as long as there is stability in, stability in the country. So it's like very hard to to ask what the government supporters want, but it's clear that they were not willing to sacrifice anything for change. Do you see any reason for hope in any of these situations? Dude, your your questions are very hard, okay? Like, I did not prepare for that. I don't know why you're doing this to me. We don't mess around on this show. (laughs) Uh, uh, You know, I think... I think probably what I'm going to say next is something that all activists, not only in Syria, but every activist who took part in the Arab Spring kind of will agree with me in that, you know, like they will feel exactly how I'm feeling. But like it's very hard to witness something that is so big and so hopeful in your country and seeing and seeing it being destroyed and stay sane. It's extremely difficult and Sadly, I have I have uh, many friends who are dealing with depression, who are, 
you know, like just like doing drugs in order to kind of distance themselves. But the failure of the Arab Spring is really heartbreaking. And it's very hard to just like move on from that. And so like so many activists, and I know that for a fact, also the Egyptian activists, so many of the Egyptian activists and the Syrian activists, as if they're stuck in 2010 and 2011, you know, they're just like repeating memories. They're just like seeing old videos. They're like listening to old music. They are stuck into that period of time, refusing to believe that the thing they witnessed is completely gone. And um, so I don't know what is hope, to be honest. I think there is nothing to be hopeful about. Uh, just on a personal level, I think we should just do our best and, you know, just like try to move on and try to write our version of the history. Like we should not let dictators today like Sisi or or or, uh, or Hafez al-Assad to write their own version of the story. We should write what like what happened and what we witnessed. You're working on a book right now, your first book. Is it about this? Is that what you're you're doing? Are you are you telling the story? Well, the book starts before 2011. I speak about how what was it like to grow up in Syria and go to public schools and what was it like to grow up Alawite. Um I wanted to explain to people. I mean it's it's not to explain to people, but I I feel that if I explain the history of Alawites in particular, people will understand or it will make sense why so many Alawites decided to uh, to side with the Syrian government. Uh, and then I speak about how I joined the uprising and then I speak about everything that happened on, on a personal level. And then, in, yeah, and then between 2011 and 2014, I was in rebel-held areas. Uh, I try to speak also about the mistakes that we did as activists. Um, it, it's like it's, it's not like self uh, self criticism, but it's very important now to kind of look back and reflect on what we did wrong. Um, and then I speak about coming here to the U.S. and trying to start over and seek asylum in the Trump era. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to publish the book and working on it has been really kind of healing for me. And when do you have any idea when it's going to come out and where can people follow your work? I mean, you can follow me on Twitter. I don't really tweet that much because I hate pots and, uh, and I hate trolls and I don't really tweet that much, but when I have a new article, I will, I will post it on Twitter. Um, the date of the book, book is not really clear yet because I'm still in the process of pitching it to uh, I mean my agent I'm now working with an agent that we're gonna also uh, submit the proposal very soon um, so I don't really have a clear date but I kind of have a clear idea what this book is going to be or how the book will be structured and um, and I think it's very important to have a book written by a Syrian who witnessed the revolution like out there, you know, I feel most of the books that were written on Syria are written by, with all due respect, with all due respect to all the books out there. But I feel that they just focus so much on the war and the uprising. Only few 
really spoke about living in Syria before 2011. And, um, and yeah, I think that's a missing puzzle of the story that needs to be told. Well, thank you so much for coming on to War College and sharing your story with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. And, and I'm, I'm sorry being, for being distracted, but also your questions are really hard. I did not expect that. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, again, it's just such a, you can't, when, you, when you're dealing with something like this, uh, especially as an outsider, I think the tendency on the part of Americans is to look away or simplify. Um, and you can't do that here. We, we have to stop doing that. And the simplifying, I think, I think the main problem uh, with the Syrian conflict and like all these so-called experts that they offer the simple narrative of this conflict this is why they have so many followers you know it is easy now to go on your show and be like hey listen it's a government against Qaeda and the Qaeda is supported by the US that is like that is like a very simple narrative that every woke person in America who doesn't really follow the conflict will be you know will be okay with that uh, explanation you know but you cannot do that to the Syrian conflict. It's very important to understand the timeline. You cannot just like simplify things. It's a crazy eight years war. Thank you so much for tuning in. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Derek Gannon, and Kevin Nodell is associate producer. If you like War College, please rate us and leave a comment on iTunes. Uh, you can also follow us on on Twitter at war underscore college. And on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash War College Podcast. We will be back next week with more stories from behind the front lines. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.